Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is August 30th, 2013, and my guest is David Epstein, a writer at Sports Illustrated and author of The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance. David, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. Our topic for day, today is your book, The Sports Gene. It's a wonderful, it's just, it's a fabulous book. I learned many, many captivating and fascinating things about Thank you. sports and lots of other topics. It is about sports, but it's really about a lot more than sports. It's about human achievement generally and the age-old question of nature versus nurture. What role does genetics pl- do genetics play? What role does environment play? And it's relevant for some of the educational issues we've been talking about, and I expect we'll get into all these over the next hour. I want to start with the role of training and the role of practice in creating greatness. Malcolm Gladwell in his book, Outliers, put forth an argument that there's something magical about 10,000 hours of practice for creating mastery in sports, music, and other areas. What's his claim? Where does it come from? And what's your take on it? Well, so the 10,000-hour rule originates, um, although it's often called Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000-hour rule, it actually originates with the work of Anders Ericsson, um, a psychologist at Florida State. And it comes from one particular study uh, that used 30 um, violinists who were already so highly pre-screened that they had gained admission to a world-famous music academy. So this is not a study that was set up in a way that can look for the existence of innate talent because it was starting at the very, very highest level. Uh, you know, it's like starting with NBA players and then ignoring that their average height is six seven and saying only practice got them to where they are. And the, the top 10 from that group averaged 10,000 hours, not at their peak, but by the age of 20. They actually went well beyond that at their peak. Uh, but there was quite a bit of individual variation between there. T- 10,000 was just an average. But some people made it to a certain level faster and others slower. And one of the things that I've pointed out is that it isn't, in fact, a magic number, um, as it's called in outliers, because taking the average necessarily obscures all the individual variation that shows up in every single study of any type of skill development. Uh, You give some counterexamples, dramatic counterexamples, and of course – Anecdotal evidence is can be informative. It, it could prove that it's not – at least a claim isn't always true. It can disprove mm-hmm. an, a strong claim. But it is interesting uh, the variety of success that people achieve with and without training. Obviously, most great athletes, most great musicians train like crazy, uh, but not all of them. So t- tell us about that high jumper. Right. So in, the, in my second chapter, I, I uh, sort of – tell a story I call the tale of two high jumpers in which I sort of profile two high jumpers, one named Stefan Holm, who over the course of 20 years, and by his estimate, 20,000 hours, uh, made incremental progress every year to the point where he became one of the best high jumpers in the world. And then in 2007, he travels to the world championships and is met by a total unknown, a Bahamian jumper by the name of Donald Thomas, who just uh, recently had started high jumping basically because he found out he, he was good at it on a lunchtime bet. Um, at his college. And so Donald Thomas is closer to zero hours and, and Stefan Holm is closer to 20,000 hours. So they average 10,000 hours, but Donald Thomas actually wins that competition. And so I thought it was a good uh, story to explain the fact that not only is there huge variation, 
but different athletes can get to the same place via both different biology and different training programs. So that, that nature or nurture question has sort of always been a fallacy. Uh, now, practice does make something. It may not make perfect. Uh, it may not get you an Olympic medal. Obviously, it can improve uh, almost anything, any in, innate trade, whatever level you start yeah. with, right? That, that's right. And so in, in, when you look at the study of chess, for example, which in many ways has similarities to the kind of perceptual mastery that a quarterback develops, um, it, takes, it takes a long time for everyone to become a grandmaster, for example. And it takes you know, thousands of hours. Nobody achieves it before that. That said, the, the range of variability, the range of time it takes people to get to that level and many never get to that level, gets enormous from people who make it in a few thousand hours to people who are at 50,000 hours and haven't made it. So the complex tasks definitely require more practice to achieve mastery. At the same time, the individual variation becomes even larger. And there's a guy right now who's testing, uh, again, it's only one data point, but it sure is interesting, a uh, guy who's testing the 10,000-hour thesis with golf. Yeah, this is Dan McLaughlin. He was um, a commercial photographer, and most, his day job was, was sort of largely taking photographs of dental equipment and he decided he wanted a life change. And so he dropped everything and just, you know, having read, he read a couple books that talk about the 10,000 hours and he, he decided to uh, put in his first hour of training to be a pro golfer. You know, he got a PGA certified coach and he's tracking every hour um, along the route to expertise. You know, he should, he should reach 10,000 hours in 2016. I think he's about a six and a half handicap now. Um, but w w he's making this big show of, of doing the 10,000 hours. But when I ask him and what he told me in the book, he says, well, I think you could master a task in anywhere from 7,000 hours to 40,000 hours. But obviously the 7,000 to 40,000 hour rule doesn't have the same ring to it. But the real question for me is, is, um, I'm five, six, mm -hmm. uh, my NBA career, uh, if I said, you know, I'm tired of being the host of Econ Talk, I I'm going to uh, hire a, a trainer and become an NBA basketball player, uh, 400,000 hours wouldn't do it. And we'll talk in a minute about NBA, uh, the NBA, yeah. where we have a lot of interesting things to say specifically about the NBA. But my point is, is that obviously uh, it, it, I – the 10,000-hour claim is silly. There's nothing magical about 10,000 hours. It's not like at 9,999, you're an awful golfer, and then that last hour puts you over the top. And it's way low for most skills, too. Well, that's it's the crucial question. So if I wanted to become, um, let's say I wanted to learn to play um, uh, The Entertainer by Scott Joplin on the, on the piano. I've never played the piano. I know what a chord is on the piano. Could I – is it near certain, somewhat certain that there is – some number of hours within a human lifetime that I could master that if I have, say, virtually no musical ability? So, first of all, in, in music um, and other things like language, there are clear developmental windows that you don't want to miss. So, in golf, there's less evidence of that kind of window where your genes and your environment need to coincide at a particular time in order to get the best output. But um, for music, like to have perfect pitch, for example, you basically have to have been exposed to music in some major way, it, probably studying it by the age of six, or you're just not going to have perfect pitch unless you speak a language like Mandarin, which is a tonal language, which can make up for it. Um, but so, so you would be facing the issue of a developmental window. Would you learn to play it eventually? I think you absolutely would learn to play it eventually, but I don't think you would ever, it would I think it would take you a lot more practice uh, you know, than someone who started earlier and might be more disposed to that. And I, I don't think you would ever play it as well as them necessarily. But, you know, 
you talk about a developmental window. You also say in the book, no slow child became a fast adult. So if I'm not sufficiently genetically gifted in running, uh, it doesn't matter how many hours I put in training and lifting weights and and sprinting and doing the right nutritional things, I'm not going to get there. Yeah, I mean, that's in, in running for sure. So to, to contrast that to piano, one of the things that we know is important in learning a motor skill, like pian- which like piano is a perceptual motor skill, is uh, building myelin, like the insulation for your neurons. It's sort of like insulation for a wire, making sure that the, the signal is being transmitted as fast as possible. And you can, throughout your life, continue to build that. It never, it never, it starts to deteriorate and become more difficult when you're older, but you can improve throughout your life. In terms of running, uh, I actually just saw a study. I I didn't see this in time to include it in the book because it just came out of Oklahoma State football players over four years of a strength training program, you know, in a major division one college program. And they found that lifting weights greatly increased their ability to lift weights in the gym and made no difference to their sprint speed. Uh, So all indications from a huge body of work are that if you want fast adults, you have to start with fast kids. Did it help them with anything else, though? Could they lift their suitcases more easily? <laughs> I'm sure they, they could lift a lot more weights. It didn't improve their vertical jump either, either which I was a little surprised at. Uh, and so I think this actually highlights the fact that, um, and I saw this when I was a national-level track runner, is that a lot of these sort of hidebound traditions of strength coaches uh, have athletes doing things that are, there's no proof that it's linked to their actual performance goals on the field. Yeah, uh, we'll come back to weightlifting maybe at the end because I'm interested in that. Uh, talk about Jenny Finch. Uh, you wrote a, a there's a great ep- excerpt from your book online that we'll post. Jenny Finch is the uh, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, uh, softball women's softball pitchers. And talk about what happened when she faced uh, major league baseball players. So this was in 2003. She was invited to participate in a charity uh, softball game, and she was actually only invited as a ceremonial coach originally. She wasn't meant to pitch, but you know some of the guys wanted to wanted to crank a couple homers off of her. So in pregame practice, you know, <laughs> they, yeah, right, exactly, <laughs> didn't quite work out that way. Yeah, this shows how little athletes know about how they do what they do. I think because they expected to hit home runs off of her, and and because the look, the ball's bigger. Uh, and the transit time of the softball pitch at the speed she throws it from a little closer distance is exactly the same as the pitches they face in baseball. So it's the and, equivalent of about 95 miles an hour yep, from a she, pitcher's rubber. Yep, which is, which is fast but pretty typical. Jenny throws in the mid-60s and from 43 feet. And they couldn't even hit foul balls off of her. And it turns out that uh, reflex – I thought Major League Baseball players just have fast reflexes. But it turns out it's not the case. I actually scored faster on a visual reaction time test than Albert Pujols <laughs> did. Congratulations. The, the human biology is just not capable of tracking an object moving that fast. So I, just, advice, I, have, to, I have to interrupt, David. Sure. You're not exceptional on the reaction. It's that Albert Pujols no. is totally average. Oh, right. He scored, <laughs> well, he, a little, he scored 66th percentile compared to a random group of college students. Yeah. So, um, you know, a little better than a random group of average of man, random group of college students. But um, – so the, the advice to keep your eye on the ball, for example, is nonsense. You can't do it. The angular position is changing too quickly as it gets close to you. And the minimum amount of time it takes to initiate muscular uh, motion, you know, in response to something you see is a fifth of a second. And that's half the flight time of the pitch just to initiate muscular action. So the way that hitters are actually able to accomplish this is they've learned perceptual cues, like the movement of a pitcher's shoulder before the release, the flicker of the ball, which is the flashing patterns the seams make right when it's released that allow them to basically predict the future uh, so that they can really decide where to swing long before they have to do it. So it's very much a learned skill. 
Well, the other extraordinary thing that you chronicle in there is um, the eyesight difference between it's, – it's not so much reaction time, but eyesight. Right. Talk about some of those differences um, between uh, pro, athlete, pro baseball players and me. Right. So this is why I use the hardware-software analogy in that section of the book where I talk about it's software, these perceptual cues that players have learned are software. It's like something that you download, something that you learn, which is why they can't, they can't hit when they have to face someone with an unfamiliar shoulder motion, unfamiliar ball rotation. That said, once you learn those perceptual cues, it is of the utmost importance that you're able to pick them up as early as possible in the pitch so that you're not left relying on reaction speed. And it turns out that major league hitters have average visual acuity of about 2012, which it means that they can see from 20 feet away what I have to move to 12 feet away to see. So they are useless without their learned skills. But once you have those learned skills, you have a better full machine if you also have the hardware that allows you to pick up those cues much earlier. And that's a common theme of the book, right? The, what you call the interweaving, intertwining of, of acquired skills and genetic or natural ability. Absolutely. I mean, there, there are no outcomes without both genes and environments. And, it, and as much as sort of people want a blanket conclusion about how much of sports expertise is nature and nurture, it, it very much depends on this, not only specific athlete, but the specific sport task. Uh, and I try to try to bring that out throughout the book. So before we leave the 10,000 hour uh, story, what's uh, I know that Malcolm Gladwell's responded publicly to your uh, book in, in a recent article, and mm -hmm. I know you've appeared with him. What's his what's his uh, response? Well, I think it's sort of been twofold. So he said um, he enjoyed the book and he feels like I made a bit of a straw man argument with the 10,000 hours. I should say, beyond Gladwell, others have taken a much more strict stance than him. He, he sort of says in Outliers, 10,000 hours is a magic number, but yeah, people are talented too. Whereas some of the other books and talks and things like that, people have said, well, it's 10,000 hours, there's no room for genes. But, but Malcolm has said sort of that he, he said yesterday when I was on uh, radio with him that the 10,000 hours shouldn't be applied to sports, uh, that it should only be applied to more cognitively complex tasks. That said, sports scientists who study sports expertise think of the, th the sorts of responding and decision-making that athletes have to do as extremely cognitively complex tasks, as, as complex as anything that we do. So I think um, sports scientists would argue with him. And his other point was that uh, there are no naturals, right? Like nobody learns to be a grandmaster in chess without thousands of hours of practice. And I don't disagree with that at all. Just like no one learns um, human language without many, many hours of practice. That doesn't mean that there aren't um, different abilities to pick it up yeah. that show up in the individual variability. Some exceptionally gifted people get a head start. And as yeah. you point out, uh, they also have a head start in their willingness to train, their taste for training, their pers yeah. their passion, their will, stamina. There's a thousand things that are mixed in with this, some of which are genetic, some are not. Right, exactly. And actually one of the biggest surprises uh, in the reporting of the book for me was I sort of knew that there was plenty of literature showing that physical training influences your dopamine system, you know, the, the chemical environment that, that is involved in pleasure and reward in your brain. Right. I didn't know that there was such voluminous literature showing that how your dopamine system is in the first place influences your drive to, to be physically active. That was, that was a really interesting finding to me, an interesting chapter for me to write. Yeah, you, you point out there's huge differences in people's disposition to be, to be active. To move around versus uh, to be on the couch. And, and of course I picked, and I guess intuitively, you know, when I was training, I sort of knew that, that I had teammates who needed to be managed to train as much as they should and others who need to be managed to train less. But that, that 
uh, line of reporting led to my, one of my favorite interviews in the book, which was with Pam Reed, um, one of the greatest ultramarathon runners of all time. When I interviewed her, it was the day after she had just finished um, U.S. Nationals in the Ironman Triathlon, having qualified for World Championships. And she really, she's an extreme. She does not feel, she feels uncomfortable when she has to sit still. So she's at LaGuardia Airport while I'm interviewing her and her flight's delayed and she's running. So she stashed her bags and she's running laps around the parking structure while I'm talking to her. The <laughs> day the after an ultra marathon. Yeah, the day oh, after. Right. It's extraordinary. Yeah. So that's extreme, but I just thought it was really interesting. And so she herself is always reading studies of, of, of how mice are, scientists breed mice for their motivation to run because she's really interested in how she got that way. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, one last thing, I'm sorry, I just want to stick with the 10,000 thing for one more thing. That golfer, yeah. you just sort of mentioned in passing, and I almost forgot when you said it to, to ask you, you said he's down to a six, a six handicap? I think he's a six and a half handicap. What did he last start session? at? Uh, I mean, I don't know what his, his he, he had no, he'd only gone to driving ranges before he had no, he had no experience. So he's, I'm he's impressed. quite a long way, but I'm, impressed. I'm, I'm very impressed. And I think, I think it was astute of him to say, well, I think you could master the skill anywhere from 7,000 to 40,000 hours. Maybe he'll be a 7,000 hour guy. Who knows? That said, um, he, there's some evidence that he's facing some diminishing returns in terms of his rate of progress right now. Yeah. Speaking of diminishing returns, you make a, a fantastic, um, mix of economics and uh, medicine and statistics observation when you refer to an article, I, you'll tell me when it was written, uh, that, that predicted that it was only a matter of time before women world records uh, surpassed those of men in many areas. Uh, there were people were looking at, it, at the trend and how the record-setting times, and I forget which sports they were, but some track and field and swimming for women were – improving so rapidly now that women were becoming more athletic and it was only a matter of time before they passed those men. That didn't happen. Uh, explain what the mistake was. So, and those were actually scientific journal articles from scientists both in the late 90s and, and early 2000s um, where they basically looked at trajectory of women's world record progression. So seeing that women, you know, who had previously basically been barred from having competitive opportunities in large part, once they were allowed to compete, their records were coming down really fast. And if you, if you graphed those and extrapolated where they were going, you would see them passing men in every running distance, basically. The, the problem, I think, was twofold. One is that women had a – they were first in the early part of the – of sort of the learning curve because they had been blocked from participation. So – and that's the same thing you see whenever a sport opens up is you see a quick progression of records that then has diminishing returns. But also – a lot of that trajectory came from the 1980s, what's sort of known as the mega doping era uh, for female athletes. So testosterone and its analogs, which are steroids, have a huge impact on female athleticism. And that all the basically all the track and field records now date back to the 80s when we now know because of released records, there was huge systematic doping um, in Eastern Bloc countries. And so since that has gone away, not that doping has gone away, but mega doping is much more difficult to do. Uh, women actually appear to be getting slower. Um, and so the biological gap between men and women is now opening uh, because women can no longer set records while men occasionally, occasionally inch forward um, a little bit and largely due to Usain Bolt only. <laughs> right. He's kind of, yeah, he, he's an outlier. Yeah, for sure, by any stretch. You do make the observation, which uh, I, I applaud for its intellectual honesty and its um, uh, the power of the observation, that if genetics didn't matter, men and women should have the same 
outcomes. It just women might have to practice a little longer, but in certain areas, they simply cannot and will not uh, due to muscle mass and other other things. They're close in, I think it was swimming. Is the closest? Is that right? Long distance swimming, yeah. the, the performance difference is about 6% at the top end. Yeah. Where, where is, is it larger? Um, in, in, tracking, in, in running events from every distance from 100 meters to 10,000 meters, it's 11%. If you take the top 10 men, they're the average times versus the top 10 women. Um, and so, you know, at, at, at 10,000 meters, for example, a, uh, a, a man who made the bare minimum qualifying standard for the Olympics would lap the women's world record performance. Uh, but the biggest are in throwing events. So e- despite shot put javelin, so like in the javelin, despite the women throw a lighter implement, and it's still about a thirty percent difference in performance, um, even with the lighter implement. So let's talk about uh, NBA and basketball. There, you have an ex- just an extraordinary array of interesting observations about basketball. Um, th- there was the implication. I think it's in Gladwell, and then we'll leave him behind. Uh, but I think he talks about how. Uh, or maybe you generalize that, that yeah, it's, he says that after an IQ of 120, it doesn't help you that much, which I think is not, probably not true, but that's his claim. And there's a related claim, or did you make the analogy to height in basketball? After a certain height, it doesn't no, matter no, that he, much. He, he made the analogy to basketball. So, and then so I what evaluated is it? it. Yeah, that, go ahead. That after a height of about, it's called the threshold hypothesis, that after a certain threshold, it, more doesn't really matter. You're already good enough. And he, uh, he put that at about 6'2 um, for basketball, saying, you know, it's, it's better to be taller, but beyond 6'2, it doesn't make that much of a difference. And saying, hey, sort of look at Michael Jordan. He's not nearly the tallest guy who's ever played um, in the NBA. So I just kind of set out to evaluate that threshold hypothesis for the NBA. And you found? And I found uh, that that's not quite true. So I found, first of all, to my amazement, that height is a much more narrowly constrained trait than I would have guessed. Um, it what does that is, mean? It's, it's, so what's what statistician would call a leptocurtic curve. So it's, you know, an inverted U curve, but very narrow, like really, really looks like a mountain. It falls off quickly. So 68% of American men are just in the six inch range from five, seven to six, one. And so beyond that, it starts falling really, really quickly. So at, at six, two, actually with about every two inch increase in height, your chances of being in the NBA go up about an order of magnitude until it starts to just get silly, where at like six foot 10, you have a 3.2% chance uh, of being a current NBA player if you're an American man between ages 20 and 40. And at seven feet, um, there actually is no percentile from the CDC data that I was using at seven feet because no seven footer has shown up in any of their surveys in the thousands and thousands of people. Because there aren't enough if, of them. Right. But if you, uh, if you follow the curve um, and you know, and I make it clear that it's an estimate, it suggests that uh, if you know a, a seven-foot man in America who's between ages and 20 and 40, he has a 17% chance he's in the NBA right now. Yeah, I'm actually surprised it isn't higher. Um, because, I sort of am too, actually. Because if you're seven feet, this again comes back to the practice point, if you're seven feet tall, you have such an advantage. Uh, if you could work hard enough, the financial returns are extraordinary. Yeah. And of course, 17% is a very big number. Um, there probably isn't another profession uh, where more than 17% of the seven-footers are, are, are doing it now. Uh, so yeah. it, it is, it's basketball-centric. There's no doubt about it. But it is uh, interesting given how lucrative it is that there aren't more. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And again, that at seven feet, since there was no percentile, um, that's that's very much an estimate. But but I agree with you. And some people, I've gotten input from people both saying, oh, that's got to be too high. And others saying, oh, that's got to be too low. So, uh, but, but that's interesting. Let, let, me, let me ask you a question. So you yeah. mentioned that you're five, six, and you talked about the NBA. So can you touch the basketball rim or have you ever been able to? 
Well, when I was younger, David, uh, I could get my wrist. No, uh, I, I cannot touch the rim. Okay, so the, the grand total number of men who have been tested in NBA Combine who can't touch the rim and have made the NBA is zero. So That's shocking. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. So, I mean, well, I could, there's always a first. I could be the white swan who, who, who drifts upward uh, into the NBA despite not being able to touch the rim, but it hasn't happened yet, you're saying. Right, so the, the short players, um, often they both have long arms, and so far every one of them has been at least able to grab them, usually much higher than that. Um, but the very shortest guys in the NBA tend to have unbelievable jumping ability. I mean, two of the shortest players in NBA history both won the dunk contest. I think they had other compensatory mechanisms for their height. Yeah, so that's Spud Webb. Spud uh, Webb and Nate Robinson, yeah. 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 And then Muggsy Bogues, who was five foot three, uh, was um, actually an amazing jumper. He just couldn't palm the ball. But he could touch the rim. As he could he, dunk a volleyball. Yeah, uh-huh. he, just couldn't, he just couldn't palm the basketball. So let's talk about arm span, wingspan. That was one of the most extraordinary uh, things I didn't realize in the that, you, that I learned in your book. Uh, many people have seen the famous drawing. It's Da Vinci, right? Of the right. a man circumscribed in a circle with his right. his arms re- reaching wide and the circle going above his head. So for the average person, wingspan tip to tip with your arms extended is. Virtually identical to your height. And mine, a little bit longer, but close. Out of curiosity, I I measured mine. It's exactly the same. Um, So you're a little shorter than average then, because so am I. I'm exactly the same, which is actually slightly shorter than average. But in the NBA, it's not like that. Uh, And and this opens up a whole set of things that we'll talk some about, which is uh, what we think of as as specialization or selection, how certain traits are going to be in the marketplace are rewarded uh, disproportionately. So an NBA player's wingspan is on average how much more than his height? Uh, the average ratio is about 1.05, so which is means that the average NBA player is about 6'6 six, six and 3 quarters, and his arm span is about 7 feet. Um, and the short players, if they seem undersized for their position, are often even much longer than that uh, to make up for it. So like a guy like Elton Brand, who I grew up in Chicago, and I remember when the Bulls drafted him at power forward because he's about 6'8", people were saying, oh, you're spending the first pick on a guy who's you know maybe a little undersized at a power forward, but his arm span is 7'5". Uh, so he's a giant among Mind power forwards me. if you look at it functionally. Yeah, and Ke- Kevin Durant is also a big outlier on that. Yeah, I mean, the, a lot. You know, a lot of the good guys are so. So is LeBron James. And I wouldn't have even. You know what? I was surprised when I was doing that was the guys that I would eyeball, and I would have thought like Tayshawn Prince was by far the longest in the NBA. And and my eyeball assessment wasn't always right uh, when I turned to the NBA Combine data. I wouldn't have guessed that LeBron James had particularly long arms, but he does. Is that uh, are those measurements pretty reliable? You think at the Combine? From- from the NBA Combine, they are. So from the media guides and like anywhere that you would Google a player's height, absolutely not. Correct. So while I was doing this data, I was figuring out sort of how NBA listings actually work. So most guys who are seven feet, listed at seven feet in the NBA, you know, when they show it on TV, are actually about six ten and a half. Because what happens is at the Combine, they make them do real measurements where they have to take their shoes off and get measured. But then for some reason, they also measure them with their shoes on, you know, as if like... I mean, they could just get them taller shoes and change that measurement. But what guys do in their reported height usually is they take their shoes on height from the measurement. So say they're 6'10 and a half. And with their shoes on, they're 6'11 and a quarter. And then they round it up to the next inch. So it'll be, so 6'10 and a half goes to seven feet in most cases. Okay, from now on, I'm saying I'm 5'9. Okay. (laughs) Except for Shaquille O'Neal, who's a true seven foot one with his shoes off. And whose shoe is about... A, what is it like a thirty? It's yeah. he probably compresses it a lot though too, so he might not get as much height advantage out of it. Um, now, 
talk about Marfan syndrome, which I didn't fully understand. Uh, you mentioned the book a couple times. Yeah. Uh, isn't one of the symptoms of Marfan syndrome that phenomenon, the longer wingspan than height, or is that not right? Yes, no, that's that's absolutely right. So Marfan syndrome is a disease of the connective tissues that can be potentially fatal because that includes uh, like your coronary artery, which can rupture because of a problem with the connective tissues. And one of the most conspicuous signs of Marfan syndrome um, is elongated limbs, very long hands and very long arms. Uh, and, and often being very tall. And so actually, uh, a woman who was maybe, you know, one of the greatest volleyball players in American history named Flo Hyman, who was six foot seven, actually died on the court, and it turned out she had Marfan syndrome. But um, one of the diagnostic criteria is the length of arms to the height. So why don't, do some NBA players have it? I'm sure some NBA players do, and others get evaluated for it. So like I remember, and other people with long arms as well. So Michael Phelps, who has pretty long arms compared to his height, he wrote in one of his biographies, in one of his autobiographies, that uh, he, gets, he was getting checked for it every year when he was a kid because some doctor looked at his arm span and said, you know, we should keep a tabs on you. Um, so it's, it's often the case that people who have long arms, they don't necessarily have it, but they, they will have been checked for it by an astute doctor. While we're on Michael Phelps... T- Tell us why his body te- – what's unusual about his inseam and yeah. why that helps him because that fascinated me. So M- Michael Phelps is six foot four, and he has the same size pants as the guy who's five foot nine and holds the world record in the mile. Um, and that guy has extraordinarily proportionally long limbs, and Michael Phelps has pro- extraordinarily proportionally short limbs. Michael Phelps has this interesting mix of short, uh, short legs, long torso. You want a long torso in swimming. That's the best. It's like the long hull of a canoe. Uh, and and long arms. He has long arms and short legs, which is unusual. Uh, that said, there are other guys at his level who have that. He's he is uh, not like alone on this body type island in elite swimming. There are others who have. I assume it. not. Right. You yeah. assume not. So yeah. let's talk some more about body shape. If I think I understood it correctly, you made the argument in the book that if you simply had the height and weight of uh, an Olympic roster, you could do a pretty good job of guessing what their events are. Is that is that correct? That's that's definitely correct. I don't think you would get every person accurately, but I, uh, you know, having competed at the national level in track and field, I think you would get the vast majority of them correctly. And frankly, this I think you could do. You would definitely you could definitely do it easily if you had them charted on a height and weight graph. And I think you could do it for most positions in something like football as well. Yeah, one thing I learned that that was very. Uh, that made me feel better because I couldn't understand it was why the NFL running backs of uh, recent years are so short. And I found yeah. that strange. I'd say you have a lot of people like Ray Rice who's listed. Again, some of these are not listed, I'm sure, at their actual height. But they're listed at 5'8", 5'9", 5'10". And you think, well, wouldn't it be better to have a running back who's 6'2", or 6'3"? There used to be some. Larry Johnson was a large running back. Yeah. Think, well, they could bowl people over. They'd be hard to tackle. And then you think, well, maybe they're low to the ground. They're harder to tackle, people claim. They, quote, have a lower center of gravity as if that's somehow a magical advantage. But that's not their advantage. It's something else. Yeah, so – and there still are some big running backs, but they're but they're increasingly rare. And actually, even as humanity has gotten taller, running backs have, have gotten shorter. Uh, and so in the shortest running distances, it's actually an advantage to, to be short. So shorter limbs have less what's called moment of inertia. It's like less resistance to beginning to be in motion. And so in any running task that is mostly comprised of acceleration as opposed to top speed, being small and actually 
um, having short legs is, is really advantageous. You look at a guy like Manti Teo, who was, uh, you know, the defensive player, best defensive player in college football last year. When he went to the NFL Combine, he ran a terrible 40-yard dash. And everyone said, well, maybe he's not as good as we thought. But he ran, and he has short legs, but he ran a great 10-yard dash. And that's really what he's going to do on the field. Yeah. <laughs> and so running backs aren't very rarely running full speed. They're starting and stopping. And most of what they do is, is, is acceleration and deceleration. And in that, uh, it's actually an advantage to be small. So that's I'm readjusting my professional aspirations now from basketball to <laughs> from football. Because at 5'6", I have a huge advantage over, those, yeah. over Ray Rice. Uh, yeah, so, of course, all these points have to do with the fact that uh, – there's other factors, but just that once you're selecting for, say, quick start, say, sprinting, or once you're you're selecting for long distances in the Olympics, say, marathoning, it's going to be very difficult for a person without the ideal body type to compete because it's just a huge disadvantage. Right. I mean, so – and there there are people who find compensatory mechanisms, but all things being equal, those advantages are a big deal. And, and I don't know what Ray Rice's listed height is, but having stood next to him, I'd be shocked if he's actually over 5'8", and I wouldn't be shocked if he's under. Yeah. Uh, why are marathon runners small? So in, in the marathon, there it's sort of twofold. One reason is because a major one major limiting factor um, in endurance is your ability to dissipate heat quickly. Uh, so at the um, at at about one hundred and four degrees core temperature, you will slow down or stop. Your central nervous system will make you, unless you're taking amphetamines, which can sometimes override that and causes people to um, you know cycle or run until they have heat stroke. But um, you, have to, uh, you have to unload heat. And the greater the surface area of your body is compared to your volume, the quicker you unload heat. It's, it's just like a radiator, right, that has coils. It, it, the point of the coils is to increase the surface area to the volume to let the heat get out. And that becomes a really big advantage because we know the limiting factor uh, of heat dissipation. And that said, um, smaller people also, because as you grow in height, you, you, your volume increases in three dimensions while your surface area only in two. So you actually become sort of heavier for your size and which can be a disadvantage for running economy as well. And who's the, who's the woman, uh, the tall women marathon runner who's great in hot, in cold weather and not in hot? Paula Radcliffe. She's about, she's about five, eight, which for a female marathoner at her level is like a gigantic, you know, so she's like literally there are women like below her shoulder when she's what running. Are they usually? Uh, five, two, five, one, you know, there's, um, still be some four eleven people who win major races in Olympics. There was a four eleven Olympic champion, um, recently, but hovering right around five feet often. And that's not to say there can't be taller ones. Um, but it's, it's quite rare and they, they absolutely don't win when it's hot. Like if you want to place your bets when it's hot, you can just basically scratch off someone like Paula Radcliffe. And she's undefeated in, in the winter. And yeah, so in, in the prime of her career, she, she, I mean, she was so dominant. She went, I think, 7-0 and in fall marathons. And in the summer Olympics and uh, warm weather marathons, she was never even a factor in the race. So in the history, let's talk about speed and running. In the, in the history, I'm uh, quoting you from the book, uh, in the history of American running, 17 men in the history of American running have run a time faster than two hours and 10 minutes for the 26.2 mile marathon. Yeah. I'm not one of them. Uh, <laughs> I, I did break the four and a half hour mark in 1976 in the one Good marathon. Like, yeah. Uh, I'm, but, and I'm short too, which you'd think what I could have done better than that, but it wasn't enough. Uh, so I didn't break 210, but 17 men in history have, and yet in American history, and yet yeah. in October of 2011, 32 men from one part of Kenya broke 210. 
from from one tribe. That's right. And that's about 458 mile pace, I think. Um, and yeah, 32 Kalenjin men from the Kalenjin tribe, which is so in, in the United States, we think of Kenyans as being great marathoners. But when I went to Kenya for the book, um, they think of the Kalenjin as being great marathoners. It's not to say that there aren't great marathoners from other places, um, but that's a tiny, that's a minority tribe in Kenya, about 10 to 12% of the population. Yeah, and I it's think, over 80% of the elite runners. I think I would need uh, more than 10,000 hours to run a half a mile in two and a half minutes, the pace at which they're uh, running 26 consecutive miles. Um, so this has intrigued a lot of people. And the other intriguing thought is that a very small country, Jamaica, has some of the fastest people in the world at short distances. Usain Bolt, yeah. and um, what's uh, what do we think is going on there? It's not so straightforward, is it? No, it's it's pretty complicated. And so let me start with the the nature part. Um, so every man who's been in the Olympic 100 meter final since the boycotted games of 1980, whether his homeland is the United States, Canada, Jamaica, Netherlands, Portugal. Um, Every single one has his ancestry from a small swath of West Africa. And that area uh, happens to have people that tend to have just a, just on average, a slightly higher proportion of fast twitch muscle fibers, the kind that contract really explosively for activities like sprinting. So they have low latitude ancestry. So, in, so they've evolved the adaptation of long limbs proportional to body type, good for running, bad for swimming, to, to unload heat. And they have a shift toward, just on average, higher proportion of fast switch muscle fibers. So you, you have a population that all other things, you know, being taken into account, in general, you'll find more people who are uh, fit for explosive sports. But that said, it can't be all genes because there are more people of Jamaican descent in the United States than there are in Jamaica. So it can't come down only to genes. So I read about some of those other factors as well. Because because the Americans could should be – the American team should be world-class using just Jamaicans in America. Yeah, yeah, and, and we are world-class, but we're still getting our tails kicked by um, Jamaica. And I think that – you know, Jamaica is really making the most with its with its culture around sprinting uh, of of the talent pool that it does have. I mean, it's like high school track and field there is like Texas high school football here. You know, which with shady boosterism and all. You know, when I went to the national high school championships, which is over thirty thousand people, you know, like packed into a stadium. It's like a world club uh, world cup atmosphere for high school kids. I was asking coaches about recruiting, and they would tell me. Well, we're not allowed to give refrigerators to parents anymore in an effort to get their kids to come to our school. I didn't even ask them that, but apparently there's all sorts of shady recruiting going on, you know. And, and that, that event, it's the National High School Championships. They don't really even care about pro sprinting in, in Jamaica. They didn't – there was no attendance at pro meets until the Asafapal Usain Bolt showdown before uh, the 2008 Olympics. They would, they would draw bigger crowds for the five- and six-year-old kids' national championships. So there really is a lot of emphasis and a lot of fun events around youth sprinting in Jamaica. And the chances of a – fast kids slipping through the cracks in Jamaica is like the chances of a good football player slipping through the cracks in the United States. Yeah, I'm actually a big fan of shady recruiting practices. I think athletes should get at least refrigerators or their parents. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think that's probably good. But so I don't know who's getting the rents that are now uh, – that used to go to the refrigerator. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they're donations. figuring out something. Yeah, I bet they are. Um, what do we think – so that's sprinting. The, the Kenyan case uh, and the marathon and the longer distances – it was quite fascinating. There's a lot of different hypotheses and, and theories. What are some of them, and, and uh, what do you think we know and don't know? So what's quite well evaluated is that the body type 
um, not necessarily of Kenyans, but of the Kalenjin tribe in particular, is very well suited to long distance events. So they have, this is as low latitude ancestry a population as you can get. You know, I was crisscrossing the equator when I was, when I was visiting them. And in a hot and dry climate, they have uh, extremely narrow pelvic breadth. So when you evolve in a, in a low latitude environment with a hot and dry climate, you follow, tend to follow something called Bergman's law, which means you have whatever organism you are, human or, uh, or other animal, um, where you have more narrow pelvic breadth and Allen's law, which is that the closer to the equator you are, the longer your limbs are compared to your body size. So just so, to just to generalize, um, uh, Aleuts people uh, used, yeah. used to be called Eskimos. I guess that you, you mentioned it's not necessarily the politically correct term, but people who live in igloos uh, tend to be short and stocky, and people who live near the equator tend to be tall and narrow. That's right. So very, and there's some there's some variation depending on the microclimate. So if the people at the equator are in the rainforest, you know that can alter it somewhat, like the, like it was the case for the um, the Kikuyu, which is a larger tribe in Kenya, um, but. Uh, yeah, so theoretically, the ideal body type for heat conservation, you know, at the North Pole would be a sphere, right? And so people tend toward that shape, which is they have a large volume <laughs> compared to surface area, so they retain heat and they have short legs. And so they are becoming uh, more spherical as yeah, you go north. That's awesome. Well, it's like, uh, the, it's like the Earth. You know, the Earth's not really a sphere. Uh, it's taken right. uh, millions of years of rotation to round off its rough edges, but that's not exactly what's happening. But it's the same process, I guess. Right. And a pole would be the best at the equator, right? Yeah. Because that would unload heat through every surface and have a very small volume. And, and the reason that's important for running is it's really important to have what's called low distal weight in running, which means very little weight away from your center of mass. So uh, your leg is a pendulum, basically. And the longer and lighter it is, the easier it is to swing. So in, in a laboratory setting, when a runner is, when eight pound weight is strapped around a runner's waist, it increases energy consumption to run at a given pace about uh, 4%. But if you take the same weight and put it in the form of two four pound weights on the ankles, it increases energy consumption 24%. So where the weight is, is critical. And the build of the calendar, which is called the nilotic body type is what uh, anthropologists call it, is on average, really good for efficient running. And, and what studies have shown is that it's not that, that Kenyans compared to like Danish runners, which are some of the studies I evaluate, they don't have a greater ability to use oxygen overall, but they get a much better pace for a given amount of oxygen because their running economy is so good. And the oxygen issue arises because um, I assume, if I, I don't remember, but I assume the Kalanjin are at altitude. The Kalanjin are at altitude, but more important. So there's been this rhetorical that's question. This issue of whether training, being, being born at altitude, being born a mile high or two mile, or a mile and a half high, is an advantage or not? Because it seems to be. It certainly is an advantage if you show up on their track out of the blue. You're going to struggle. For sure. No question. No question. You, you'll actually be sort of if you just show up, you'll be hyperventilating while you get used to with sort of without knowing it while you get used to those conditions. But the the altitude. So there's been this rhetorical question in track and field for years about well, if it's just the altitude, then why aren't Tibetans dominating? And there are a number of reasons why that's kind of a fallacy. One is because their climate's quite different and they are not as linear. Um, two, they are too high for the kind of intense training. There's sort of an altitude sweet spot where you get the increase in red blood cells and there's adaptation to the lower oxygen, but you can still run hard. Uh, but really, the, the, um, an important factor is what you want is to be not genetically adapted to altitude. So you want to have sea level ancestry so that when you come up to altitude, uh, you increase red blood cells. So Tibetans have a gene that stops them from overproducing red blood cells at altitude so that their blood doesn't get too thick. So they don't get one of the, you know, one of the changes that 
uh, runners want when they go to altitude. So you want sea level ancestry, but to grow up at altitude because then you'll have the increased red blood cells. And if you're there before puberty, you'll have a higher surface area of your lungs, which is better for your diffusing oxygen into the blood. And that is exactly the case of the minority tribes in Kenya and Ethiopia that dominate running is they have sea level ancestry, but in um, recent history moved to altitude, to mid-level mid altitude. And how much training are they doing? A lot, and it's not it's it's not systematic training though. Um, so there, uh, I didn't. I thought maybe there would be like some coaching secrets in Kenya, but like most of the a lot of gold medalists don't even have coaches. But what they do have is, first of all, many of them have grown up running to and from school, so they they sort of know who the faster kids are, and they're primed for training. Partly because they are used to running and they're not overweight. Um, so, you know, I think there are plenty of people with talent for running who won't find out because you, you're not prepared to even start trying to train if you're overweight, basically. Um, but so these, these kids will grow up running to and from school and then there's no opportunity cost for them to try training. So I remember in 2008, because they have such a poor country. That's right. That, that's why all the, all the runners are coming from these impoverished rural areas. And in 2008, the U.S., there was a guy named Brian Sell who uh, was on the U.S. Olympic marathon team and he was putting off dental school. Um, to, to chase his Olympic dream. Like there's no putting off dental school in rural yeah, Kenya. Unfortunately. Right? So yeah. Guys will, unfortunately, right. So if, if guys will wander literally off of subsistence farms in sandals and try to run an interval next to uh, a Jeffrey Mutai, you know, who um, won the Boston Marathon, they'll literally do that because there's no opportunity cost. And most of them will fall by the wayside because they can't do that. And a couple will be able to stick with it. And, and that's where the world beaters come from. Uh, how far have we gotten uh, in identifying the genetic basis for some of these traits that, that you've mentioned that are beneficial for so athletes? It, it, it's a big mix. We've gotten not far in identifying the, the genes that are associated with learning motor skills. Um, that said, there is some early work now on a gene, for example, called BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And I actually cut this one from the book because I had to cut a lot of space. But there are different versions um, that involve metabolism of brain chemicals and that people with a certain version seem to uh, retain – they seem to learn skills quicker, basically learn motor skills quicker and forget uh, – um, and less often sort of forget that if they are made to sort of simulate driving along some sort of course that they, they retain uh, the memory of where they're supposed to be going better and they pick up the skills quicker. That said, most of the genes involved in motor skills, um, you know, we know the genes are involved from studies of, of twin studies and things like that, but we don't know what they are. In other skills, like endurance training, exercise genetics is really rewriting our whole notion of talent from something that pre-exists uh, the opportunity to train, which was literally the definition in a lot of sports psychology papers until recently, to genes, to your biological setup that allows you to profit from training more rapidly than the next guy. I mean, for the book, I got tested for some of those genes that predispose one to being what's called a high responder to training. And uh, sure enough, I had a lot of genes that predisposed me to having a, a rapid response to endurance training, which is exactly what I saw in my athletic career, where I didn't start out that well, but I, I progressed at a much faster rate than some of the guys I was training with. Yeah, you give the example in the book of Jim Ryan, who I remember from my youth, uh, who was the world record mile holder, uh, as somebody who just yeah. exploded from being an okay runner to a world class runner by some practice. Yeah, I mean, he went from running a five thirty eight mile to a four oh eight basically in a season. <laughs> so, yeah, which is mind boggling. Obviously, that's extreme. But there are also two genes in the book that I highlight that are unusual in the fact that they 
the, the more of the study there is, the less it looks like single genes have huge effects in most cases. Um, so there's some diseases where we know that's the case, but they are the minority. Um, but there are two genes I highlight in the book where a single version of a gene has made a huge difference to an individual's um, athletic performance. Those are few and far between, but those cases, they, they do exist. I want to come back to those, but I, I first want to emphasize, because one of the themes of this program is the role of complexity and the difficulty we have in untangling causation. Uh, a theme that comes up now and then in the book is that the relationship between particular genes and outcomes uh, are much more complicated than we originally thought. Yeah, much. I mean, basically, when the human genome was sequenced a decade ago, there was some wishful thinking from scientists, and, and it was interesting to go look up old articles where you'll see people saying, well, now we've got the whole instruction manual for the human body. You know, in five years, you're going to be carrying around your genome on, in, in a card in your wallet and present it to your doctor. And so 10 years later, not even close. And so it turns out that genetics has been more complicated at sort of every uh, possible turn. The, the main initial complication being that genes work in networks and rely upon one another. So they have to be studied in networks most of the time. So if you change one gene, it might change how the others are functioning. Uh, and they have differential response to different environments. And many of them have effects that are so small on their own that the studies that were conducted looking at them were too small to find to detect that effect. So we're now coming around to more novel ways of studying and making more progress, but it's, it's been much more complicated than originally thought. So there's a nice statistic in the book. You say um – in 1975, as a quote, in 1975, athletes in the major American sports averaged roughly five times the median salary for an American man. Today, the average salaries in those sports are between 40 and 100 times the median full-time salary, close quote. And that's, that's a revolution that's due to technology, the ability to sell your services around the world effectively. You have more bidders, but you also reach more people through television, the web, the net. Everything has just changed uh, in sports, and it, it reinforces a point I like to make that there are different sources for inequality, and, and some of those sources are not political or they're not a conspiracy. It's what Sherwin Rosen and Ed Lazier in a, land, in a landmark paper called The Economics of Superstars, and it's been taken and written about by a lot of people that the very high end of the skill distribution in lots of areas uh, get a lot more money than they used to. Um, What's that doing to – one of the things it's done is, of course, as, as we already talked about, it's changed what sports people go out for. It's a lot more expensive to miss your ideal sport. So people switch sports to the ones that are the yeah. most rewarding economically and financially. They still do some things they might love, but but the cost has gotten higher doing that. And it's also led to some uh, genetic testing and, and some market opportunities for people that may not be so successful or maybe so attractive. Talk about what the the role of money in sports is doing with that genetic overlap. Well, so I think there are two two sort of different issues there. One um, is that explosion of, uh, you know, potential compensation for sports has led to really a worldwide talent search and to many more people in different parts of the world wanting to participate in those sports if they can, like you mentioned for seven-footers, you know, give it a shot because it's a huge potentially hugely lucrative lifestyle. And that's led to this extreme specialization of body types um, in sports where in some of the sports psychology literature, because athletes have gotten better and better, the, uh, the papers will argue, well, that they've gotten better so much faster than, than genes could have evolved. So it must be practice, but that's not the case. The gene pool in the sports has changed for sure. I mean, the proportion of 
of NBA players that were seven feet doubled, like almost overnight when uh, when the league became, you know, very lucrative. That's because people were practicing getting taller. Yeah, right. And, but it's it's gone down even to the micro level, to things you wouldn't expect. Like water polo players now have longer proportional forearms to their total limb because it helps for throwing than they did uh, in the past. So it's even going to the micro level, you know, and that's why I likened it to these athletic bodies fitting into their their, their sporting niches like uh, Darwin's uh, Finch's beaks did into their niches. And, and the scientists who sort of found track this trend called the big bang of body types because the body type for any given sport is sort of getting weirder and blasting apart from all the others. So female gymnasts in the last 30 years have shrunk on average from 5'3 to 4'9. Um, but yeah, so that's the gene pool really is changing in sports. But but you also mentioned the the kind of, I think you were getting it sort of the direct-to-consumer genetic testing. Yeah, yeah, because that, that, right? that interested me too. So that is exploding faster than anybody is discussing it. There are now plenty of companies that will test your genes for you, and I've participated in a couple of those. But in most cases, the marketing is is way ahead of the actual science. So the most popular gene test that's offered to parents is the ACTN3 gene, the so-called sprint gene, because it, it codes for a protein found in fast-twitch muscle fibers. And if you have the so-called wrong version, you know, you're just not going to be in the Olympic 100-meter final. I'm sorry, like that's just a fact. But uh, if you do, you know, that only rules out about a billion of 7 billion people on earth. So this test is being marketed to parents saying like, take this and find out if your kid is going to be a sprinter. You're like, well, you know, fine. So he's, he's lumped in with the other 6 billion instead of the 1 billion. It accounts for a small amount of variance at the top level. So the marketing is, is well beyond... Um, you know, what it should be. That said, there are some tests for things like a gene that we know predisposes kids to, or anybody, to permanent brain damage if they take hits to the head like in football. That one, I'm frustrated there's not more marketing behind it um, because people aren't really aware of it. And that one, I think people actually should take advantage of. Uh, you close your book with the story of one of the greatest cross-country skiers and Olympians of all time. Uh, talk briefly about what role genetics played in his story. Yes, yeah, so this is a man named Aero Manturanta, and he was... Um, in the 1960s, uh, possibly the greatest endurance athlete in the world. Um, certainly up there, he won seven Olympic medals, three of them gold. He sort of came from this tiny Arctic hamlet and, uh, you know, had, didn't have much, uh, didn't even really know what it was to, to be a professional athlete, but he had grown up skiing across a frozen lake to and from school, you know, very much like a Kenyan kid does for running and just wanted a better life and um, realized he, he had pretty good talent for cross-country skiing. And, but when he would be examined medically, he had this huge proportion of red blood cells, much, much bigger than his normal. And so he looked like even an extreme version of athletes who are doping with, by using the hormone EPO, which is what, you know, Tour de France cyclists made famous, basically. It's a synthetic version of the hormone in the body that, that cues your body to produce red blood cells. And so it was assumed that Arrow was somehow finding a way to blood dope and that that was the cause of his success. But 20 years after he retired, a group of scientists who got curious, who were finding these high blood levels in other members of his family, uh, came and examined the whole family and found that some of them had this rare version of the EPO receptor gene. That The receptor is like the lock and the hormone is like a key. And when they're put together, stuff starts happening. And they had a rare version of this EPO receptor gene that caused the body to be extremely overly sensitive to... EPO and to go crazy producing red blood cells. And that's what gave Arrow this incredible uh, oxygen delivery capacity. So other members of his family who have the gene, uh, like his nephew, also won a gold medal. And the members of the family who don't have it um, are not good ski racers. And so I thought that was a really interesting example and a rare case where a single gene makes a huge difference. Well, an 
it's a beautiful story, and you write it very, very eloquently about your visit to his to his place in the middle of nowhere and the he's a reindeer farmer in the Arctic. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what what fascinated me about his story is that he resents might be too strong a word, but yeah, he's not. He doesn't believe. He doesn't like believing. I think, and I understand this that he had a genetic advantage. Yeah, that's right. And and that actually uh, it was surprisingly rare when I talked to athletes. For the most part, I found elite athletes to be the most accepting of the idea that they had certain gifts. And maybe that's because at that level, you know, w- with almost no exceptions, they train as hard as they can and they still get beat sometimes. Yeah. So maybe they understand and that. Everybody, but, and everybody they know is pretty gifted. <laughs> right, right. And But for Arrow, he was sort of, and I think part of that was because his whole career was conducted under this cloud of doping suspicion, right? Where people assumed that he was doping in some way they just couldn't figure out. Um, but, but of course, his, his, he was kind of doping. Right? He was naturally doped. He was naturally, naturally doping, doping, which is unattractive, <laughs> right? It's basically saying they were, even though he wasn't a cheater, yeah. his critics were right in some dimension. And and there are other there are other athletes out there who have these high red blood cell levels. We don't know if they have the gene mutation or not, but they basically get a doctor's note for their competitions to say these have been documented as natural in me. I'm not cheating. Um, but he was resistant to that idea. He said he would kind of sort of say, "Well, but it also thickened my blood, and so I think it balances out and everything." And and of course, the doctors who examined him said, "No, his oxygen carrying capacity was unbelievable. It's a huge advantage." So you could argue if you were one of his competitors, that you should be allowed to dope to make it a level playing field. I guess you could, except for... Um, it's against the rules, but... Except, except for it's, it's you... So the, the reason that Arrow's uh, genetic gift was able to be found was because it came from a single gene. That doesn't mean that his competitors don't have those have gifts. They clearly do. They're just harder to detect. You know, Arrow's, Arrow's gene mutation never would have been detected if a group of Finnish scientists 20 years later hadn't said, huh, let's look into this. So if those athletes' idea is that they don't have uh, – it's not fair, then that's a slippery slope for them because then they'd somehow have to allow every guy on the street to mimic their genetic gifts. But that's a – I think I think that's the central policy, ethical, philosophical issue around sports these days with, with this obsession with testing. And, you know, it's, it's such a strange thing. Um, you know, Barry Bonds is a cheater. Be, because he allegedly is allegedly a cheater because he allegedly took an, a a steroid to help him uh, bulk up, but he has so many other gifts. Everybody accepts that. It's not like he he's me. He he had innumerable gifts of eyesight and and a huge amount of work and and so to me, how how are we going to distinguish? Speculate about how we're going to distinguish between so-called natural gifts and so-called unnatural gifts. And I put so-called after unnatural because. It's not clear what's natural and what's unnatural. Is lifting weights unnatural? Is it why is it that cheating? And it gets at the at the heart of what competition is, right? Because we care about competition because there's a there's a there's a justice issue that we want to see the best person tramp, but there's also a beauty issue. We want to see the fa- faster and faster people. We want the ball to go farther in, in a home run contest. So to me, these are blurry lines that I, I'm not sure we really ever can can successfully keep straight. Right. I, I think it's a very difficult issue. Um, and I don't kind of talking about a level playing field isn't naturally, at least, isn't always a big concern for me because what I think is the coolest about sports is the display of human biological diversity. So I don't want to see like a bunch of clones or identical twins who are only separated by practice. Um, but that said, I think I, I, I've tried to sort of, I've thought about this a lot because I've done a lot of reporting on doping. Um, and 
you know, in the book, I even write about a gene that, that gets some people through drug testing, but I, I, about what sports are. And I, I love the take of this philosopher, Bernard Suits, who spends a whole book trying to define them in a sentence. And he comes up with um, the voluntary acceptance of unnecessary obstacles. And, and I kind of <laughs> like that. And it, it makes me think, you know, even the rules that we think are stupid in sports, there's hardly anything so dependent for its core values um, upon agreed upon rules. So like cork, I have no you know, moral qualms with cork. Never mind, it doesn't work, but it's banned. So I think- Corking, um, corking a bat. Corking a bat, right. Um, so I think it's, it's totally fair for people to kind of lobby for the rules changes and, and that we should talk about them in a non-hysterical manner, which it seems almost impossible to do when it comes to doping now. But um, that in the meantime, the core values of sport do depend at least on the agreed upon rules. This is true. Um, this is true. It's hard to know what those rules should be, though, I guess, is right. the, is the challenge. And the role of t- testing is imperfect. Uh, the amount of effort and energy we spend on it is high. Yeah. Um, that means there's people getting away with stuff. Others aren't. You know, people oh, complain yes. about Barry Bonds. The, te- the pitchers were using steroids. It's, it's just bizarre. Right? Well, well, let me tell you. I mean, the, the uh, public reputation of drug testing far, far exceeds its capabilities. The rate of false negatives in drug testing, enormous. A and false, that's a false negative being? Being someone who's doping and they pass the drug test. Yeah. Enormous. Yeah, it's, um, it's good to know. It's something we should, we should remember. Uh, one thing you didn't talk about is the Dominican Republic's dominance of baseball. Mm-hmm. Did you did you think about that at all when you wrote the book? I did think about it, and I and I did some reporting on it as well. And um, the the reason I didn't I didn't kind of bring it into play was when I wanted to talk about sort of these hot spots of athletic development. I I decided ultimately partly for space and partly for um, I guess accessibility to to different sports was to pick the hot spots that were recognized more globally in sports that are globally competitive. So baseball, of course, the idea of a World Series is is pretty big joke because there's only a couple of countries that even attempt to play yeah. and to find their, their best athletes. Yeah, yeah. mainly ours, uh, but yeah, but there is yeah. that new thing. Yeah, I don't, I don't consider the World Baseball Classic. Uh, yeah. Right. I, I am really interested in the fact that Japan and Taiwan always do so well in the Little League World Series. I think they just won their like third out of four. Japan yeah. did or two other, and then but have are surprisingly underrepresented at the professional level, at least in the United States. Um, but anyway, that's neither here nor there, but, but yeah, mostly I decided that I wanted, if I was going to pick my hotspots, I was probably going to have space for two and that I wanted to go with things, um, globally competitive. Do you have any thoughts on the Dominican Republic? Yeah, I think their development system is like the baseball version of Jamaican track and field, you know, where you, you, you have high incentives, um, you have, uh, uh, you know, little opportunity cost for a lot of the competitors and you put a bunch of people on the professional's training plan and you accept the ones who come through. I also think of the Dominican Republic. One thing that deterred me a little bit um, is the, you know, Dominicans are highly overrepresented among people who test positive for drugs. And if you graph the, the chances of, a, of uh, a player testing positive based on country of origin against GDP, it's like a very tight inverse uh, relationship. So you're talking about steroids. You're talking about steroids. You're talking right. performance enhancing drugs. Performance enhancing drugs. That's right. And so it suggests it suggests to me, you know, that the less opportunity there is, the more likely they are to dope. And and my colleague John Wertheim in a book called Scorecasting 
Um, it's kind of a freakonomics of sport. He, he breaks down drug tests and shows that for players in the minor leagues, first of all, Dominican players are much more likely than others to test positive. And, but that even a player who tests positive has a 70% better chance, even if they are suspended and test positive, of moving to the next level of baseball, whereas an extra year of experience only increases their chances 20%. Hmm. So even getting caught is well worth it. Wow. Uh, well, let's close talking about uh, the diversity you mentioned a minute ago because I like the way you celebrate that at the end of the book. Um, talk about why uh, you think sports is, is so beautiful that way. Well, first of all, in the section of the book where I depart from sports for the longest, I guess, span of words, I talk about sort of what race does and doesn't mean in, in a genetic perspective anyway. And this idea that we really, all of us outside of Africa have only been out here for a relatively short span of time in evolutionary terms. And so all this genetic variation that was built up in Africa is mostly still there and only very little outside. So if you got rid of all of us outside of Africa, you wouldn't lose that much. Um, but it also means, you know, the vast majority of our genes are are quite similar, but but what's different so is is enough to cause huge differences, even between brothers and brothers and sisters and sisters who draw their genetic material from the same place. But uh, mixing of genes causes them never to be identical. And, and I just think it is... Uh, what sports are and should be is um, an attempt to get the most out of what someone's gifts are and see how they can be used uniquely. And there are all these, not only different sports, but different positions within different sports. Like look at a football field. The, 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 you almost have the extremes of the human physique represented on the field at one time. And I just find that to be really cool and fascinating and, and a big departure from the early 20th century idea that the average body type was the best for all endeavors and that anything that deviated from that was basically a mistake. My guest today has been David Epstein. He's author of The Sports Gene. David, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.